is that we're going to use uh, the expertise of our panel to weigh in on some cases. And um, as a clinician who's been doing HIV care for a long time, I'm really struggling right now with how do we incorporate all these new drugs into our clinical practice. And I think it's helpful sometimes to have, have a case as a starting point for a discussion about how people make these individual decisions. So the questions that I have throughout my presentation have multiple choice answers. And but they're not, in many of the cases, there's no right answer. There's one where there's definitely one wrong answer. But most of the time, it's really a matter of style. And I think that what's nice is to be able to hear how different people will approach this. I know in our clinic, we get together about once a month and discuss difficult cases. But a lot of people work in settings where that's not always possible. So we're having a case conference here this afternoon. Um, okay. So UCLA, it's warmer there than it is in this room. Uh, my disclosures uh, for clinical trials. I have an interesting disclosure. I had a disclosure uh, with Gilead two years ago, and UCLA lost the check, so I have to keep reporting it <laughs> until it's been after a couple years. OK, so the objectives today, we're going to talk about options for initial therapy um, in select patient populations. And we're going to talk about managing multi-class uh, failure and also talk a little bit about where some of our new drugs might fit. So first question. Oh, this didn't get changed. Um, the, which of these is not currently a component of the preferred first-line ART? And number four is supposed to be raltegravir, not pivirine. So Rumivir, Ritonavir, Lopinavir, Ritonavir. Adizanavir, Ritonavir, or Valtegravir, number four. OK, that was just a pretest question. The next question is just, just raise your hand. How many of you care if it's a preferred regimen when selecting initial? How, how many of you feel like that's, really, that's an important factor when choosing a first-line regimen, that it's a preferred regimen on a guideline? OK, not a whole lot. <laughs> Excuse me. When I came to Atlanta last month, I picked up a respiratory virus and still struggling to get over it. Okay, so our first case is a 45-year-old woman with HIV. She was recently diagnosed during routine screening offered by her primary care MD. Let's give it up for the primary care MD who did the HIV test on this person. Good job. So she has a viral load of 54,000 and a CD4 count of 450. She says she's ready to start ART. She wants to deal with this problem. Her history is notable for a couple things. Her mother died of an MI at the age of 50. She has hypertension that's been well controlled. She's had some mild renal insufficiency, no proteinuria. And her fasting lipids are pretty good. Uh, LDL is 120. HDL 40 and triglycerides are 120. She doesn't smoke, she doesn't drink, and she has no history of drug use. So thinking about initial regimens, just before I give you your choices, <coughs> these are some of the preferred regimens for initial therapy in both DHHS and IAS USA guidelines, the nucleoside backbones, either with a and an RTI boosted PI or integrase inhibitor. 
And then there are alternative regiments, which we'll talk a little bit more about as we go on, but those are also listed on this slide. So let's get into this case. What would you prefer for this woman for her first uh, regiment? And we're being a little bit generic here about which of these backbones you'd like to use, and not focus as much on the NRTI. So while you're voting, I'm going to ask the panel to think about this and let you all vote. And maybe let's see the answers. Okay, so majority are going with the NNRTI. Um, before we get into the panel's uh, preferences here, let me just ask Dr. Duick a basic science question about whether treating this woman now or at a higher CD4 count, say it was even higher, above 500, is that uh, associated with less immune activation than waiting and treating her a little bit later? Yeah, the evidence is coming out. Treat early. Treat the virus, don't treat the CD4 count. Okay. But what we don't really know is whether the difference in immune activation will vary depending on which of the regimens you use, as long as they're fully suppressive. That, that, that we don't, but we will as more studies are being done. Okay. So, panel, I'm going to ask for volunteers. And we have a broad range of expertise here. Um, so, who wants to go first? What, what did you choose? I'm looking at Dr. Sag. So all of the above, in a way. I mean, there's not really a bad answer up there. You could manipulate her history a little bit in favor of one versus the other. Um, I would lean towards, if I have an option, a single tablet regimen um, that, that would be relatively easy to take. Uh, her creatinine clearance is a little bit in the um, sort of cautious territory, but there's plenty of people who we start on. It's an off-air-based regimen who do do just fine. The studies have included people like this. So I think any of the answers are okay. Okay, they are okay, but I'm trying to nail you down here. This is like <laughs> what people want to know, what would you do? You have this patient, That'd she's got some family history, yeah. she's got a little renal disease. I didn't notice I didn't say which NRTI to use. I did that intentionally so that you right. wouldn't have to deal with that. But do you have a preference of these for someone like that? A little bit of a CVD history to be worried about? Well, I mean, I might I might lean a little bit toward um, maybe Adizanavir with the CVD history if we're going to make a, a bigger deal about that. Okay. How about you, Dr. Lennox? So I said I wasn't going to pick right. on people, but I am. Well, hmm. I was sort of concentrating on her hypertension and her creatinine clearance yeah. not being that great and was leaning more towards two nukes and real pivorine, although not as confident about that agent, obviously, because of the higher viral load failure rate, but her viral load looks pretty good, so. Okay. Anyone else want to comment on any factors that you would take into consideration with this patient? Did anyone on the panel say something else? Um, no, I don't think anything real different. I, I would probably go more along with Jeff, though, and, and what caught my eye more was her hypertension or creatinine as opposed to the CVD history. I mean, they're all interwoven in some ways, but that would be more what I would focus on and, and spend most of my time deciding about tenofovir or not. Okay, good. So it, as I think was said, we do have a lot of options, but there may be things that push you one way or the other. Um, let's talk about Rilpivirine since it's one of the newer drugs that is a per, it, that's an alternative, not a preferred regimen at this point. And it's been um, looked at in treatment-naive patients compared to a Favarin's-based regimens. 
<coughs> two, this is two studies that were put together in over 96 weeks, so a fair number of patients. Um, the studies were called ECHO and THRIVE. And it actually did pretty, pretty well in terms of uh, virologic suppression. I, and the, this is the proportion who had a viral load of less than 50 at 96 weeks, so about 78%. Now, there were more virologic failures on rilpivirine than there were on efavirenz. And um, the, there were more nucleoside resistance mutations in those who failed rilpivirine than efavirenz. Um, and the, but on the other hand, there are more people discontinued due to adverse events on efavirenz and rilpivirine. And there also were more beneficial lipid changes with rilpivirine. So while it, rilpivirine is not recommended for people with viral loads above 100,000, because they didn't do as well, they actually still did OK. But it, I think it is, it is a good option for somebody whose viral load is lower in terms of, uh, of, of for these points. So that's a new drug that I think people are starting to figure out like who, who, would, who we should use it. Maybe people with a history of CNS um, side effects, depression, maybe it would be an option over our standard uh, favorins-based regimen. Okay. Now the other alternative first-line regimen is the um, Elvitegravir, Cobacistat, Tenofovir, and FTC. And um, the key thing with this drug is it can't be used in people who have a creatinine clearance of less than 70. And um, because the cobicistat inhibits the secretion of creatinine. So the creatinine level goes up a little bit, and it makes the estimated creatinine clearance go down, while true GFR is not impaired. It's a little hard to sort out what's the cobicistat effect and what's real renal dysfunction. So people with any underlying renal dysfunction just want to avoid it altogether. But there's no evidence that renal function is impaired by this. Um, there are some drug interactions, and it's only approved for treatment-naive patients. But what about using this in first line? When, when, do you, when do you think about it? Anyone have experience? Yeah, so we've, we've used it a fair amount. Um, I think it, it really boils down somewhat to patient preference. It boils down, I think, in, in our cases, usually it's where we're not choosing rilpivirine or a Favarin's single-dose regimen. So, um, we don't have right now a single dose regimen for a boosted PI. As we talked about earlier, that will probably be coming up with Darunavir and Cobacistat in the near future. So it might be a patient with a higher viral load uh, who are lo who's looking for a single dose regimen um, and you want to maybe avoid a Favarin's. Okay. So then the other new drug which we heard about this morning, Dalutegravir, which is not yet approved, just sort of going back to what Dr. Gulick was talking about, that it does look very promising for treatment-naive patients um, compared to raltegravir in this study, and um, where it was not inferior to raltegravir. And then in the next one, compared to um, <coughs> efavirenz, note the very prompt virologic suppression that occurs um, here. And then in this study, um, it was uh, actually superior to efavirenz. So that'll be another option in the future. Uh, I think we'll be in this conundrum of this is a very potent integrase inhibitor. It works on uh, in settings where there's some integrase resistance. Do you use it up front? Do you save it for later debate that we always have about new drugs that are potent? Okay. 
So what about NRTI sparing regiments in first line ART? So this, specifically this case I think highlights that some people have renal disease, they have high risk for cardiovascular disease, whether you think that's an issue for a Bacavir or not. Would you ever consider using an NRTI sparing regiment as a first line ART? Go ahead and vote. Okay, so 62% of you said yes. So panel, and maybe I'll pick on Victor this time, thinking about neurologic consequences of HIV and the CNS penetration of NRTI, at least some of them. Do you think that's an important factor in, in uh, choosing first-line treatment or choosing? I appreciate you throwing me a bone because I don't start regimens as a general uh, rule. I'm not typically involved. I have been involved in a couple cases presented with dementia where it's quite important to consider CNS penetrating, or it's relatively important, I should say. And I think I said before, 90 to 95 percent of the battle is just suppressing virus and plasma, which can be done with just about any regimen. Um, in this woman, there's no cognitive impairment, so there's absolutely no reason to think about how well it works in the brain. So I wouldn't use that as a, an issue. And, and not that NRTIs are any better anyways. You could, you could put together a regimen sparing NRTIs and still have a relatively good penetrating uh, mean. But if you wanted to have more drugs that got into the brain, it could become a little bit more difficult. Okay. Other panel members, thoughts about this? Have you done it before? Well, I think there's a big difference between NRTI sparing and NRTI free regimens. So I've certainly, in people with renal disease, constructed regimens that included, you know, an integrase inhibitor, a PI, and a nucleoside, you know, avoiding tenofovir. But the data that I've, you know, seen is underwhelming for completely NRTI free regimens in the most part. Okay. So by right, and well, NRTI sparing. So you might have. 3TC or FTC, but you wouldn't have a Bacavir or Tenofovir. That's the distinction that you're making. Okay. Other comments? Obviously, if you have hepatitis B, this isn't going to be an option for you. And um, it was actually, there was a really interesting presentation at CROI that looked at people who were on dual nucleosides active against hepatitis B showing a reduction in the acquisition of hepatitis B. So basically, like pre-exposure prophylaxis to hep B. And it seems kind of obvious that it might prevent you from getting hep B, but it was really interesting to see that, that demonstrated. Just to pull the conversation full circle, you want to, if you're going to use a nuke sparing regimen and they have hepatitis B, just adding lamivudine or FTC is not a good choice because you're going to get resistance from the hepatitis B virus to that agent very, you know, within 20 to 24 weeks. So you need to use a tenofovir-based regimen, and if you can't use tenofovir, you should use entecavir or something like that. Okay, so 60% said that they would think that there might be a role. So what, which, what are such NRTI sparing regimens? And this is a really busy table that highlights that people have been thinking about this for a while, and that there have been a lot of different studies um, looking at different regimens that are highlighted in this column, uh, either a boosted PI with efavirenz, with fraltegravir, with maraviroc. Um, and 
these are characterized based on whether they were efficacious, an effect on resistance, um, what the effects on lipids were, what the effects on renal disease were, bone, and, uh, and bilirubin. And uh, not all of these have been um, effective for um, suppressing virus, and I think figuring out the doses <laughs> for some of these has also been a challenge. And here's just a list of different studies that have, have looked at this. And one, one combination, raltegravir with boosted darunavir, was evaluated in an ACTG study, um, and it, it didn't look that, uh, that effective. Another study that's ongoing is um, continuing to evaluate this, and we'll see what the data from, turns out from that. There is, so that one, um, efavirenz, lopinavir, ritonavir, really high lipid levels with that, so tolerability was an issue. Uh, Raltegravir, adizanavir, um, didn't do so well, and then the um, ACTG 5262 study kind of off the list. Okay, so now you've heard what the experts say. Let's just go back to our patient again before we um, go on and see whether anyone's sort of changed their mind. It's a little bit of a different question, but thinking more specifically about this person, this woman who's uh, got a viral load of 54,000, a CD4 count of four, 450, and she's in her 40s. What, what would you pick for your first-line regimen? Get a little more detail here. Okay, so efavirenz uh, or rilpivirine-based regimens are favored, but there's, it's really a little bit of everything, and I think that, that there's no wrong answer here, and I think that this is, um, you know, the choices we have and the ability to individualize treatment, which is really a great um, thing to have in practice. I'll just make one pitch for an ongoing study of a NRTI sparing initial regimen. This is for treatment-naive uh, people without hepatitis B who have no baseline resistance to darunavir and are CCR5 tropic. And it's comparing the darunavir, ritonavir with maraviroc and FTC to darunavir, tenofovir, FTC, and maraviroc placebo. And I believe that's going on at um, Emory at this current time. So uh, we'll see. One of the challenges to enrolling a study like this, I think, has been that there are single tablet regimens available in practice. Um, the study has placebos, and that increases the pill burden for the trial. But I think it will be really helpful to see how not only do we suppress the virus with different initial regimens, but how safe are they and how well do they prevent the development of other complications such as renal and bone disease. Because if we are treating people for 20, 30, 40 years, we need to be thinking about the long-term safety, not just the short-term virologic uh, efficacy at 48 weeks. Okay, so now we're getting into more complicated uh, scenarios. So this is a 48-year-old man with an extensive treatment experience who's clinically stable. And um, in real life, he came to LA, but today he's coming to Atlanta. Let's see if you can do better than, than we did. Um, and he comes in with his records to the visit, which is always nice when people do that. Um, he di was diagnosed in 1989 with a CD4 count between 350 and 500, and followed the adv advice of his doctors at the time and was initially treated with zidovudine and then DDI. Then he went on the combination, zidovudine and, and 3TC, 
Um, and Dinavir was added later. This story sounds familiar to a lot of you. Then changed to a Bacavir, 3TC, and a Favarins. Had some problems with adherence to care and treatment. Later changed to Tenofovir, FTC, Zidovidine, and Lupinavir, which initially suppressed his virus, but <coughs> in and out of care comes in now and has a CD4 count of 75, a viral load of 69,000. So he's on this boosted PI, Tenofovir, FTC, and Zidovidine. So he gets a genotype and a phenotype. And here is the first page of his resistance test. So you can see he has a fair amount of nucleoside resistance. And I'll re-show these mutations when we get to figuring out what we're going to do. Um, he also has some um, NNRTI resistance, although he has been off of Favarance for a while and has a fair amount, but not complete um, loss of the PI class. Um, his replication capacity is low, 7.1%. He's on treatment now. So, and then what I did was put his resistance uh, mutations into the Stanford Drug Resistance Database, because I, even though I have my IAS USA drug resistance card, is that one here? Yes. It's very small print. Um, so this is helpful to uh, get sort of another read on his resistance. And it comes out suggesting low-level resistance to darunavir and to pranavir, but basically the rest of the PIs are pretty much lost. <coughs> so in evaluating this patient, one question is, would you send the HIV-1 co-receptor tropism assay on him? Yes. So most people say yes. And panel? Sure. OK. Would you so why would? I guess the question is, are there ever a situation in a treatment experience patient where you wouldn't use this um, in thinking about, and maybe Dr. Duick, this could be a basic science question about CCR5 using viruses in more advanced disease. Um, it's never too late, right? You still can find them even in people who've had very advanced disease for a long time. You don't need to switch to CXCR4 tropism to progress to AIDS. Um, Clade C doesn't. Um, SIV in macaques doesn't. Um, there, that's why. Okay, good. No, I think a lot of clinicians worry that in more advanced disease, you know, it's an expensive test, takes forever to come back. When it comes back, you're not sure where the result's going to go, um, especially if you use a new electronic medical record where outside labs end up in a place called media. <laughs> um, so, so everybody feels, though, still worth doing it. I think just to put some numbers to this, so for a naive patient with a higher CD4 count, uh, then the chance of that test being positive can be as high as 80% where you can have an R5 tropic virus. If somebody has more advanced disease, they've got more resistance perhaps, or just more replication over time, then the population shifts, but it doesn't go completely to, to a dual mixed. It still would have about a third of a chance of being uh, CCR5 tropics, so take the chance, maybe it's there. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. But I, what I, th I think also for this patient is you've got one more chance here, one more chance to get this right. And so you want to know all the options that you have to offer. Now maybe if the initial resistance test or the treatment history hadn't been so experienced and you, didn't, you weren't thinking about using, using Maravroc and you didn't need it, you might not bother. But it would, I think, still be good to have this information especially if there was toxicity or intolerance. So I, I think this is a, a, a good thing to do here. It sounds like you mostly agree. So it re returns, he's R5-tropic. So then you think, well, okay, what do we have to use? And I, I like to sort of start with the list of all the drugs and then cross off the ones that look like they're not going to be active. So I'm making this a little bit easier for our panel here. It looks like to me, Based on that, here's what we got. We have to choose from based on his resistance uh, profile. So he may have a boosted PI. He might be able to, or he should be able to respond to an integrase inhibitor because he hasn't been on one before. Etrovirine may have some activity. Don't forget the T20, and now we have Maravroc. So the question is, the next question is, would you consider including NRTIs in the next regimen for this patient? Remember, this is the last chance to have a fully suppressive regimen. So would you include them or not? OK, so that's really good. That that's, I think, represents you know, we, we don't know, right? It's, we don't know the answer to the, Well, now we do. But we didn't know uh, the answer to this question. Um, we didn't have good data to guide us on the answer to this question um, before CROI this year. What does the panel, what does the panel think? You, I think you're about to show us that CROI presentation. Yeah. Um, let's show that, and then I'll pull a Lee Corso and say, not so fast, my friend. OK. Let's talk. OK, so this was a study called the Option Study which was about omitting NRTIs, the hypothesis, would be non-inferior to adding them in treatment experience um, patients uh, who are being optimized without hepatitis B, you know, the usual caveats. And so this is a busy slide, but let me just walk you through it. So it was a multi-center study, uh, individually designed regimens. So people had to have more than two active agents. Um, and NRTIs, they were randomized to either omit or include NRTIs into their regimen. Um, the drugs that were provided by the study are shown here, and there were 20 different potential combinations of those. But what happened was the patient got the resistance test, went to this expert group, and they said, here are the drugs that you can use for this person, and then either include or don't include the NRTIs. And they were followed for primary endpoint was at one year. They were stratified as to whether they had Maravroc and whether they had prior um, uh, infuvertide or integrase inhibitor experience. And the primary endpoint was confirmed virologic failure or discontinuation of the NRTI. And then they also looked at a safety endpoint of severe signs or symptoms. And the study was designed to rule out that omitting NRTIs had a 15% higher probability of failure one year. One of the issues is we keep the NRTIs in because of their residual antiviral activity, but maybe at some expense in terms of toxicity. So just very briefly, the um, study had about 180 in each group. Um, the 
ethnicity, years on ARVs here, 12 and 11, uh, about a little over half for R5 tropic only, less than 20% had prior and pubertide use. And the, um, okay, go on. So here's what, what people use. I thought this was a really interesting slide um, of the different combinations. So the, ha over half of the participants used the raltegravir, drunavir, and um, etrovirine combination, either with or without nukes. Then the next most common one was raltegravir, drunavir, with maraviroc. And then there were a few of these other combinations. But many of these are the choices that we have for this patient. So I thought it was interesting to kind of see um, how this came out. So, and then of those who added NRTIs, um, you can see, well, you can't really see because all the colors are the same, <laughs> which NRTIs they added. So bottom line was omitting the NRTIs was not inferior to adding them. So they lost nothing um, in terms of regimen failure. And here's the point estimate in the 95% confidence interval. In terms of virologic failure, and then in terms of stopping the NRTI assignment. And um, so this was I think, pretty convincing that there was no uh, loss of uh, efficacy by not including the NRTIs in the next regimen. Um, the CD4 and RNA responses were similar. Interestingly, there was an, an interesting analysis. There were fewer deaths on the group that omitted NRTIs, um, significantly fewer deaths. But they didn't appear to be deaths related to NRTIs, and so it was probably just a fluke, but it was interesting. Um, and then there was no statistically significant difference when they considered both symptoms and labs. So, Dr. Sag. So, with disclosure, we were also, like I think almost everybody here, a site that participated in the study. So, let's pull back and, and think conceptually and biologically and then come back to this question. So, biologically, we've known really since the T20 Toro studies and a number of other uh, studies that we compared um, the PSS scores, and we knew, meaning the phenotype sensitivity score or genotype sensitivity scores, this study had at least two, and it meant almost three active drugs from the start. So when you, when you start with the possibility of any three drugs working, it almost doesn't <coughs> matter what drugs you're going to use as long as they're taken and as long as they're tolerated. So I don't think this study answered the question, in my opinion, that it was designed to ask. What it was, or at least what I thought it would be designed to ask, because of that entry, and we're kind of caught in an ethical catch-22, right? Because you can't just get a PSS score of one, or one and a half, and then put them on uh, inferior regimen. So that's kind of where the study broke down. Well, well actually, I, no, I think. I mean, I know I see what you're saying, but I think the point was that this study was done at a time when multiple new drugs were available. And clinicians struggle still with even in the setting of having a couple of new drugs, do you still need the nukes? Oh. And, and I think that, I think, you know, we say, oh, well, let's just keep the 3TC on and just in case. And I, I think this yeah, study so, showed so you. So I'll take it a step back. So what I'm trying to say is that I don't think it matters if you have fully active drugs. The, the rule has always been at least two and preferably three. I don't think it's ever said nuke, non-nuke, PI, integrase. It says two to three active drugs. And that's what this study showed. Right. So I'm not terribly surprised. 
No, well, not either, but I think it's, uh, well, I, I don't know. Do people in the audience feel like this will help you now? Have people felt like you wanted to include the drugs? I guess if you're not, if you, um, if the nuke is replacing one of the other drugs, yeah. maybe that. So uh, to me, it just sort of confirms what we already knew, which is active drugs are active, and you got to use them, and it, whether they're a nuke or a non-nuke or whatever. I don't think it tells us not to use non-nukes, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Okay. Other comments? You know, people have always talked about the fitness advantage of 3TC and, you know, continuing that in a non-suppressive regimen, and that sort of gets carried over into a suppressive regimen, I think, to some extent. Right. So this and allows you to not give the 3TC. Well, it's sort of in that setting when you already have two to three drugs. In a setting where you have more limited options, I still would use 3TC or FTC, not for fitness, but because in all the studies, even when there's an M184V, there's still about a 0.5 log, 0.7 log reduction in viral load. It's not fully active, but it's partially active. And so you can add that to the mix. But that's not the question that was really being asked here. Right. And you couldn't do a study where you would preclude somebody exactly. from using an active drug just because it was a nuke. I, I mean, I think that, I think your point is, you know, that's the context. So. For those who felt like you always had to keep them going, That's true. when you have other options, you don't. It's active drugs, not specific classes. So, okay, we've beaten that dead horse. Back to our patient. Um, so, what would you use for our patient? This is, uh, and let me give you the next slide um, of some of the options for this patient. So, he has a lot of nucleoside resistance. So, for him, the nukes weren't even an active drug class, more than likely. He's had a, he's, R5-tropic, he's got uh, NNRTI resistance, he's got a lot of TAMs, he's got some PI failure, but he's integrase-naive. So how do you go about putting together a new regimen for this patient? We have a couple of different integrase options here, some without, and then there's the always something else for the creative. Okay, so most of you went with the, the raltegravir, darunavir, with either the NNRTI or Maravroc, much like people did in the study. Um, one or two people wanted to use Elvitegravir, and, um, and then the um, darunavir with, with the tenofovir and Maravroc. Okay, so what about this Elvitegravir? Cobicistat, FTC, tenofovir, can it be combined with other drugs? Panelmen? Panelmen? <laughs> Panelmen? Well, the, the PK data just using elvitegravir with unboosted darunavir, tenofovir, FTC, and cobicistat, it doesn't look like that should be fully an effective regimen in people who are treatment experienced. And what little human data there is, is too little to really make a great judgment on. But I would be very cautious of this kind of patient with doing that. I wouldn't do that. I think if we go back to what I was saying earlier, you're looking for the most active drugs. So the answer, I think, clearly is two here. Uh, because every other regimen has got a lesion somewhere. So you've got two active drugs in most of them. Uh, you have the problem with three that Jeff just said. But only answer two has got three pretty fully active drugs, and that's probably what I would go with. This is what I think there's less equipoise about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I specifically made this case to highlight this point about Elvitegravir um, 
quad-based regimens. First of all, Elvitegravir, tenofovir, FTC, and cobacistat is only approved for treatment-naive patients. And, uh, and while there are studies ongoing looking at darunavir with cobacistat as a boosted PI, the use of it with this other combination has not been studied. But this is a really common question that comes up in our clinic with when people are integrase-naive, treatment experience, they're looking for an efficient way to make a new regimen to say, can we use this and combine it with darunavir or maravrak? And the answer is, not yet. Uh, we need more evidence. And so for that reason, the raltegravir-based options really are best here. And I think the point Mike was making of maravrak maybe having a slight edge over etrovirine in this patient who's not currently on an NNRTI and has a resistance profile that may reflect some, some things below the, the surface. So um, anyway, hope that was helpful. But it looks like most of you didn't, didn't fall for my L-vitegravir option. So. All right, last case. Um, this is a 45-year-old man from Peru who has even more experience, uh, treatment experience, and highlighted here. Um, he was diagnosed in the early 90s. Hasn't had major opportunistic infections, but has had really a series of HIV treatments that mirror drug development, um, and including ritonavir with indinavir, then lopinavir ritonavir, uh, and then early darunavir was on infubertide with valtegravir when it first came out. So this was, in 2010, looked like an attempt to salvage this patient who had already had a lot of treatment experience. Then he went off this because it wasn't working and went just on a holding regimen with tenofovir and FTC, came to the U.S., where his CD4 count is now 27. He's clinically well. His viral load's 123. You know, and I have to say, and this is a genotype from the last time it had been done before he came here. He was uh, R5 tropic. Tro is that what you, how you describe somebody as being tropic? He was R5-tropic, had a lot of uh, RT and uh, protease resistance mutations. And has this genotype, um, which is a little bit hard to read, but let me just highlight a couple of things. Um, has a lot of nucleoside resistance cut off there at the top. Um, has some evidence not on any drugs that he has um, susceptibility to NNRTIs, but I'd be wary about that. And then also has evidence of reduced susceptibility to both L-vitegravir and raltegravir, having been on raltegravir in the past. Now, I have to say, fortunately, we don't see these kind of patients very often anymore. Um, and they always come from somewhere else, <laughs> never from within your own clinic. But, but we do see them, and, it, and it, I think that one of the things about drug development in 2013 is we don't have new drugs like darunavir, etrovirine. You know, we don't have new drugs just waiting to come on the line. We only have a few more in the pipeline. So um, what would you do for this patient at this point? Um, and this is a little bit like the hepatitis C discussion. Would you cobble together a regimen with uh, Maravrak, um, etrovirine, boosted darunavir. Would you wait for dolutegravir, knowing that he can use Maravrak at least now? 
Would you try pull out T20 or would you try something else? So, 40% of you want to hold on and wait. Panel? Other opinions? Dr. Duick. Uh, I'm not a practicing clinician. I like saying Elvitegravir. I just like the sound of it. But, <laughs> <coughs> but I think in this instance, I would uh, go for number two. And I whispered that to Dr. Sarg, and he said, that's right. <laughs> okay. I was just tricking you. <laughs> <laughs> so would you wait? Well, actually, I don't think we even have to wait. Uh, because right now, we can go for compassionate use dolutegravir for somebody exactly like this. So if you have documented resistance to elvitegravir or raltegravir, you can go through a compassionate use program with Vive. And But here's a trick. Remember we asked earlier, how often do you dose dolutegravir? And the answer for the naive patient is once a day, 50 milligrams. The Viking studies that Joe Iran has presented took patients very similar to this with resistance to one of the other uh, SSTIs, tra uh, strand transfer integrase inhibitors. And if you use 50 milligrams of dolutegravir twice a day, I wouldn't call it fully active, but it's at least partially active to the point where you can use it. So I think you could probably use that now, and you may even throw here, in my opinion, a little FTC or 3TC in just for a crouton on the salad. A crouton. Jeff? I would have to agree with Mike. That's pretty much exactly what I was thinking, too. So while you're waiting for the compassionate use um, program, do you take him off completely off his treatment or leave him on this sort of holding regimen with the dual nukes? You don't know what his baseline was way back when before he went on treatment. No. I would just leave him on. Okay. So dolutegravir, just, just to reiterate a little bit about the um, Viking study, this was for people who had um, documented raltegravir resistance. And they looked at the dolutegravir once a day or twice a day for 10 days. And they got pretty good suppression rates in this really experienced population. 96% of the, the BID regimen had a more than 0.7 log decline in viral load. And 75% of these patients had viral load less than 50 um, at 24 weeks. So that's really, really encouraging. You do have to have something to pair with it. And the, the difficult thing is the longer you wait, the less likely the Maravroc is still going to be an option for you um, for a patient like this. Uh, and this just shows that 63% were fully suppressed by week 24 um, in a more recent update from that study. And then uh, finally, and these were looking at the responses um, in the Viking 3 study at day 8. So they just had received the integrase inhibitor. And the, the point was that even in the participants who had some of the raltegravir resistance mutations, um, did, they actually ended up doing pretty well. It depended if they just had one, less than or equal to one secondary mutation, they did a lot better than if they had two. So one thing that I definitely would consider is if you were in this situation and the patient was on raltegravir, I might take them off while you're waiting to get the dolutegravir just so they don't get more raltegravir resistance mutations. 
Um, Tripp talked about earlier today the new long-acting um, uh, GSK1265744, aka 744, which um, has this long half-life that may be an option in the future, but I think we have a long way to go before this is ready to be used for treatment, and we also have to have long-acting drugs to pair it with. Um, the big concern will be if people stop some components of the regimen and they're left on a single active drug that they're likely to get resistance. Okay, so, um, so the answer was wait for or use expanded access to get dolutegravir now and uh, manage the patient with this combination. Okay, so in summary, um, I hope that I've highlighted some of the expanding first-line options for ART. And we really need to, to, or we really have the luxury of being able to tailor regimens to fit patient characteristics. Um, one size really doesn't fit all, and there may be regimens that are more tolerable in some settings than others. We do need to, in our studies, focus on more of the long-term safety and tolerability of regimens um, in addition to the assumed virologic efficacy that we now have. Nucleosides per se don't add um, to third-line art when at least you have two other active drugs. And the other really important message, I think, is that the pipeline of new drugs is really limited, so we have to be um, really frugal with the drugs that we have now to make them last um, as long as they're going to need to last. So back to my question, and remember number four is raltegravir. Which of the following agents is not currently recommended as a component of preferred first-line ART? I know that the majority of you don't care, but we're still going to answer the question. All right, so 80% of you, well, yeah, actually, those of you who put velpivirine, and uh, so wait, what's before? Okay, so we went from 72 to 80% getting the right answer. Congratulations, and thank you very much for your attention. So this, Mike, this one, this is my post Oh, we aren't going to have questions. Okay, so thanks to the panel, thanks Judy, thanks to all the speakers, thanks to you in the audience uh, for participating and hanging in there with us. The by now the electronic uh, CME uh, evaluation forms have been sent to you. Uh, it's really important for you to fill those out. Yes, it's required for you to get your CME certificate. And I guess that's really important. But for us, it's important because we use that information very, very uh, critically to determine next year's meeting. Uh, also, um, for uh, electronic claim forms in your CME, you'll get that online and it'll be sent to you. Um, you, can, you can access this uh, uh, conference uh, on the web and other case presentations uh, at the ISUSA website. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Jeff, uh, co-moderating, and uh, again, our speakers, and you, the ISUSA staff, who do a marvelous job every year. Um, we'll have a hepatitis C full-day course here in Atlanta in the fall. So those of you who are getting more engaged in hepatitis C or found 
interest peaked by Dr. Wiles' talk today, there's going to be a whole day digging in, just like we did with HIV on hepatitis C, sometime in the September-October range uh, here in Atlanta, probably in this location, maybe downtown, it depends. Um, and uh, I think that's it. Oh, sorry, three high. Oh, 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 sorry. Sorry, this is important. Um, so our highlights from today, we, we're supposed to summarize for the podcast. So this is like a challenge. So early this morning, Dr. Duak talked to us about inflammation. Inflammation is bad, and it's caused by um, the virus being present in lymphoid tissue, and even when we give drugs to suppress, this apparently isn't either 100% or there's some ongoing inflammation caused by that, and tricks to getting rid of the reservoir are going to require us to, to take care of that. Next, Dr. Gulick talked to us about CROI updates, gave us an explanation of why the baby wasn't maybe as miraculous as we had initially thought, and take-home point there is that it's not really applicable to the rest of the patients we take care of. We also uh, heard him talk about newer drugs, uh, including uh, a new tenofovir, a pro-drug that got very high levels in tissues despite uh, low levels in plasma, and that might be an advantage in terms of long-term tolerabilities. Okay, in the next talk, Mike Sag uh, really summarized the impact of the new healthcare law changes on Ryan White and other HIV-funded clinics. He made some key points about that we need to be proactive, we need to contact the insurers in our state and make sure that they're aware that we exist and we would be uh, willing to contract with them to deliver care to HIV-infected patients. We need to be proactive and make sure that our state formularies provide all the necessary coverage, and we need to really advocate for our patients with our state legislatures if we live in a state that doesn't provide the expanded Medicaid. Uh, Victor talked about functional impairment. He made the point that most of the uh, cognitive impairment is asymptomatic, but that it, if you do functional tests, you find that there is impairment and then if you go on and do serial testing, you find that about 60% of the asymptomatic people have functional or symptomatic impairment within a year. So he makes the argument that you shouldn't ignore cognitive dysfunction even though the patient doesn't note any symptoms. You should try and contact family members also. Uh, and finally, the, there is some emerging data that Alzheimer's and HIV may be synergistic or additive, and that he encourages us to support more research in this area. So Dr. Lennox and Dr. Wachowski had a uh, confrontational debate uh, that got us all riled up about whether or not to screen for uh, anal paps. And I think both uh, of our participants made great points. The Jeff sort of arguing, well, this is um, something that we found benefit in for cervical carcinoma. It will also be applicable for uh, anal carcinoma. We know that uh, there are a lot, some of our patients are progressing with disease, and there are emerging data that suggest that active uh, virus present can lead to uh, this uh, emerging. The critical thing, though, is that we've got to make sure there's someone to refer to when higher grade lesions are, are present and make sure that uh, that can be taken care of. Uh, Kim uh, sort of punched back and said, not so fast, my friend. Uh, you know, we don't have any evidence of significant mortality differences in screening. A lot of data doesn't exist. I think I heard that 
six or seven times in the debate. We don't know, we don't know. And so I think it's really a concept of whether or not um, we think that data will emerge in one direction or another. And this is not new for any emerging field. You've got to, though, make your vote in, in terms of what you're going to do in your clinical practice. Uh, but I think everyone agreed that vaccination is a, is a good thing. Um, and then Todd talked to us about bone disease. And he encouraged us to screen our patients who are over age 50, particularly if they have any other risk factors. And if we find low bone mineral density, to at least think about and evaluate for secondary causes. He encouraged us to use the FRAX score to really decide on treatment regimens, and then guided us to use the national guidelines for treatment when considering whether to use a long-acting bisphosphonate in our HIV-infected patients, and talk to us a little bit about some of the complications of the bisphosphonates and when you might or might not want to do a interruption of therapy. And then David Wiles talked to us about hepatitis C, and I think it's very easy to see from his presentation how there's an explosion, really a revolution, taking place right now in hepatitis C therapeutics to the point where I think most people would say that interferon-based regimens are really going to be restricted even today to those patients who have more advanced fibrosis uh, and, and are not decompensated, but those who have F3, F4 fibrosis and really can't wait another year or two uh, for the new drugs to come. But if, for those people who can wait, it's clearly evident that the all oral regimens are very likely to replace interferon-based regimens. And if you can get people on clinical trials now, that's great. Otherwise, a lot of our patients might be able to wait. However, if you are going to treat clearly using a PI-based regimen uh, of bosepivir, tilapivir with uh, PEG riba is, is the way to go. The other point, I guess, is that um, th this race to being first out is going to be kind of hectic over the next three to five years. All types of regimens, and uh, I don't think you delved into it completely, but the notion is that there's going to be a lot of drugs out there for, for us to choose from, some of which will be FDA approved for use with another, and a lot of them you can concoct your own regimen just for drug-drug interactions and what we learn in HIV, we've got to be careful when we do that. And finally, Judy Courier opened her discussion with the panelists up, you know, talking about the utility of the guidelines for treatment-naive patients, then expanded on some uh, late-breaking data from retrovirus on whether or not to use nucleosides in people that otherwise have three drug-active regimens for treatment experience. And then finally closed, I think, with a discussion of how important it is to very carefully and thoughtfully tailor your regimen when you have significant pre-existing resistance and to make sure that you're not ignoring underlying factors and undetected resistance from previous regimens. So with that done, uh, again, fill out your evaluation forms for us. It's very, very important. Thank you for being here. Hope to see you back next year. I think we'll probably be back in this location. Drive safely. Thanks again to the ISUSA.